0: Here we go. Promises are important. Promises are important. We make and break promises every single day. We promise our spouse that we'll be home by a certain time. We promise ourselves every New Year that we'll get fit, we'll get rid of debt, we'll spend more time in relationships and less time on Netflix. We promise our friends that we'll catch up soon, we'll have dinner. We live in a world of promises, but sometimes it feels like it's mostly a world of broken promises. We break promises to ourselves, we give up on the New Year's resolution within a few weeks or months. We give up on spending quality time with the family for the fourth night in a row and turn on the TV instead or the 400th night in a row. Well what seems to hurt the most is when people break their promises to us. Our spouse neglects the marriage. The politicians that we believed in forget their promises. Our world's leaders, they break trade agreements and peace treaties, and we feel as if our world is headed on the path for war and destruction. We live in a world of broken promises. And we know this. This is why we don't trust in a handshake deal from a stranger. This is why if we're really serious about something like that, we'll get it in writing. We have legal contracts that we can enforce people to keep their word. Rare is the person who will uphold a handshake deal these days if a better deal comes their way. We live in a world of broken promises. And all of us are suffering from it. Well, just in case I haven't met you before, my name is Ben. I'm part of the team here. And as a church right now, we're doing a series through the book of 2 Samuel. The series is called Reign of the King. And the reason I started off talking about broken promises is because we're going to be spending our time in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And this chapter comes in as a breath of fresh air in a world of broken promises. It shows us the beauty and the blessing of a promise kept. It gives us a rare glimpse of someone who keeps a promise even when it is not in their best interest to do so. In fact, King David goes over and above his promise in his dealings with Mephibosheth. And if you're able to believe it, King David foreshadows a greater reality, a greater king, a more faithful king, who makes extravagant promises toward us. So whether we're Christian or not, there's something that we can all get out of this passage, for it points forward to something greater and more beautiful that applies to all of us today. And what I'm going to do with this passage is firstly retell the story. I want to take us through all of the detail. I want us to see it in all of its color, so we can get a really good sense of what's going on. And then after that, we're going to ask the question, is there any way that we're supposed to read this further as New Testament Christians? Now, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible we have is written, there's an Old Testament, and there was 400 years, Jesus came, New Testament was written, 2,000 years later, here we are. And so we're asking the questions, as people on this side of Jesus, is there any sense in which we need to read the Old Testament differently? Or is there any more that we can get out of our reading of the Old Testament? And thirdly and finally, we're then going to ask, how can we grasp hold of the promises that are in this passage? So first, let's jump into the world of Mephibosheth and David. Let's spend some time in the story. Last week, Pastor Adam took us through 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this chapter, God made grand promises to David. He promised to give him a son, a king, whose rule would never end. And then in chapter 8, the next chapter, the repeated phrase is, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David wins every single battle that he's in. He's victorious and triumphant. And now in chapter 9, the story zooms into David sitting in his palace. He's victorious. His kingdom is firmly established. He's without rival. And the first thing he does in his position of authority is to set his heart on fulfilling a promise to an old friend. He says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is an odd thing for the newly established king to say. Because in those days, when a new king ascended to the throne, they would wipe out the old king's line. They would get rid of every descendant, every heir of that old royal line to shore up power in their kingdom. But David is not like the other kings around him. He's not looking to remove threats from the kingdom. He is looking to fulfill a promise he made to his best friend and comrade, Jonathan, You see, back in the first book of Samuel, in chapter 20, Jonathan and David were talking and and Jonathan was helping David escape his father, Saul, who was intent on killing him. And Jonathan said to David in verses 14 to 16, "'Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family.'" Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Jonathan essentially asks that he and his family would be spared when David ascends the throne. Because again, new kings would consolidate their power by killing off the old royal lion. And it's important to note here that he made a covenant with David. This is an agreement more binding than a sentimental promise. It's strong. It's binding. But it's more relational and heartfelt and warm and loving than a mere contract. It's a binding, relational, heartfelt commitment. Just like marriage, for example, where two people come together to make a deeply personal, loving, unconditional commitment to one another. And it's important for us to note this because God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God makes and keeps promises. Adam pointed out last week that God made covenants with Noah and with Abraham and with Israel through Moses and then with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And our chapter today reveals David as a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping king. He is imaging God's character in our chapter. Now, after David's attendants heard his wish to show kindness to Saul's line, they go out and they find Zeba, a former steward, like a head servant in Saul's household. And when he arrives, David says, are you Zeba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? David repeats his intention again from verse 1. He is determined on showing God's kindness. And the Hebrew word that's behind that here is chesed. Chesed. It's a very special word that can't really be translated by one English word. Here's a definition I pulled out of a Hebrew dictionary. It says it means loyal love, unfailing love." kindness, devotion, that is, a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship. Chesed is a covenantal word. What I mean by that is that it's a strongly committed, relational, heartfelt word. It's no surprise, then, that our covenant-keeping God loves to use this word to describe himself. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness, maintaining chesed to thousands. The God we worship abounds with this faithful, loyal love. And David says that he wants to show this love to the house of Saul. Now, this shows us again that David is thinking of his covenant with Jonathan because it reminds us of language that Jonathan used when he said, would you show me kindness like the Lord's kindness, literally chesed. But it also shows us that David is still feeling overwhelmingly blessed by God himself. Remember how Adam showed us last week in chapter 7 that God promised David a son whose throne would never end. And in that same chapter, in verse 15, God promised that his chesed would never be taken away from this promised son. And David bursts out into a song and a prayer. He was was almost speechless over the fact that his son would experience God's unfailing love. And he wants to ensure that Jonathan's son does too. And this highlights an important truth for us. When you experience the loyal, faithful love of God, you cannot help become but become a kind person. If you want to be a better person, first go and sit at your heavenly Father's feet and meditate on His faithful love towards you. Let your heart, the eyes of your heart, see his unending smile over you who have believed in his son, Jesus. That's where we begin. Because at the heart of Christianity is covenant. That is committed, heartfelt relationship. I think we move beyond this in our culture because we're told that we need to be successful and that if we get the right steps and we work hard enough, we can get there. So we think steps and checklists can get us to our goal. We prefer a tidy program that guarantees results. But relationships aren't programs. In a healthy relationship, you cannot control the other person. It's not like with my wife, for example, I can just get a few steps and I know every time it'll make her feel loved. I need to continue learning her all throughout her life and loving her. So, this means that when it comes to God, we cannot make Him do something for us. We cannot make Him give us the life that we want. But I guarantee you that when you put relationship with God at the center of your life, you will grow and develop into a better person. Because you cannot be around God's faithful love and remain unchanged. You cannot spend time in God's presence. And not become more like him. This is part of the reason why David is just overflowing with love. With the desire to love his old enemy's house. To love Saul's line. Let's get back to the story. So Ziba answers the king and he says, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Zeba answered, He is at the house of Machiah, son of Amiel, in Lo-debar." Now I've got to make a confession here. I don't like this Zeba. It's a worrying sign that he offers up information to David so quickly. Everybody knew back then that new kings would decimate the old royal line as quickly as they could. And Ziba seems to have no qualms in offering up information about his former master's grandson, even though Mephibosheth was the most immediate threat to David's kingdom because he was next in line to Saul's throne. In fact, I don't think it is a stretch for us to think that Ziba is trying to gain David's favor for his own self-interest. He makes it very clear that although he was loyal to Saul's house before, he is now David's servant. When David addresses him, he says, your servant. And where we get a really good picture of his character is later on in 2 Samuel. This is where we get a really good idea of what he's like. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, Ziba betrays Mephibosheth by deceiving David. He lies and says that Mephibosheth was trying to take back the kingdom. But really, it was Ziba who was who deserted Mephibosheth to try and gain David's favor. He is a man of self-interest, and he is approaching David like many of us approach God. He is approaching David under the disguise of humility in order to manipulate David. He doesn't want to serve David because he's a kind soul. He is trying to get something from the king. He's trying to get his favor. He's a man of self-interest. But what about Mephibosheth? What is he like? Well, twice in this chapter, he is described as being lame in both feet. This usually certainly meant death in an agricultural society. He wouldn't have been able to provide for himself. He was also excluded from the priesthood because of his disability. And while there is disagreement about the exact meaning of his name, there's two possibilities. Both of them have everything to do with shame. We get the idea that he is a shameful outcast. In fact, the place where he is staying, Debar, literally means no place. Mephibosheth, once an heir to the throne, is now a lowly, nobody outcast from nowhere. And he was destined to die in obscurity. But little did he know that he was about to learn the power of covenant and the blessing of chesed. So David has Mephibosheth brought to him at the palace. And Mephibosheth probably would have been carried in, completely vulnerable and helpless. He was crippled. And he would have thought this was it for him. I'm I'm going to die. Now, can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine how intimidating this would have been? Here he is, the son of the king's rival, being brought in on a platter. If I was him, I would have felt sick. I mean, what what could you do in that moment? And when he arrives, he humbles himself dramatically, perhaps as a last effort to to secure David's favor. He bowed down to pay David honor. Literally, the Hebrew says, he fell on his face and bowed down deeply. Bowed down deeply. Deeply. And you can't tell in our Bible translation, but in Hebrew, his reply to David is even more emphatic than Zeba's. He says something like, Behold your servant. Behold your servant. He absolutely humbles himself before the king. He thinks the king is about to put him to death. But he doesn't realize that he is not before the king. He is before the dear friend of his father. You see, in the first five verses... Uh, he was David was referred to as the king six times. But while he was talking to Mephibosheth, there is no more mention of him being king at all. The ref, writer just refers to him as David, because Mephibosheth is before a friend. And David makes sure Mephibosheth knows this. He says, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, that's an astounding statement. What amazing king David is. He not only faithfully keeps his covenant, he exceeds it. He only needed it to spare Mephibosheth from death, but he goes over and above to bless Mephibosheth with the extravagant chesed of God. He restores to him his inheritance, and he treats him like one of his own royal sons, giving him a seat at the table for the rest of his life. Now, understandably, Mephibosheth is overwhelmed. He bowed down and said, what is your servant? That you should notice a dead dog like me. He bows down again, but this time, it's not in fear of death. It's in awe and gratitude. And that's what happens when you experience the chesed of God. It leads you to bow down in awe and gratitude. It leads to songs like Psalm 63, where it says, Because your chesed is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. That's what the love of God does in our lives. And David's kindness towards Mephibosheth shows us just a glimpse, just a glimpse of what this faithful, promise-keeping love looks like. Over the rest of the story, King David makes good on his word. He places Zeba, funnily enough, under Mephibosheth to steward his estate. And in the final verses, we see that Mephibosheth also has a son, which means that Saul and Jonathan's line continues. David happily endangers his reign by allowing the rival royal line to continue, all because he is a promise keeper, just like our God. That's the story. But how are we to understand this as New Testament believers? Is there anything further we can take from this story? Well, some Christians incorrectly think that the Old Testament is is redundant, that we should just stick to our New Testament, because that's what applies to us now. But that's not correct. Here's an important rule for us as we read our Bibles. As Christians, we need to understand that the Old Testament points beyond itself to Jesus. So it's important for us, we need to read it, and it means that when we read it, we should be looking out for ways in which Jesus was foreshadowed, or promised, or longed for. In fact, Jesus models this for us in Luke 24, verse 27. He says, he's spending time with some of his disciples and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, like Adam said last week, the Bible is one big story. It's the great story that reaches its climax in the saving love of Jesus. And last week, Adam modeled this way of interpreting the Old Testament for us by showing that Jesus was the promised son of David. Jesus was the great king whose throne would never come to an end. And this week, there isn't so much a promise in our story as there is a picture. David, as God's king, gives us a picture of what the promised king will look like. In other words, David foreshadows Jesus God's ultimate king. We'll unpack this a moment, but I want to point out how exciting this is, because this means that 2 Samuel 9 doesn't just give us a beautiful historical story of a promise-keeping king. Rather, it points us forward to the ultimate king. It points us forward to Jesus, who has come and made good on his promises to us. And this helps us to see how this kind of chesed love is available to us as well. We don't just get to read about this kind of love, but we can receive this kind of love. We can live into it. Let me explain. You see, David was a great king, but Jesus is far greater. Jesus is also a covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling king, but the promises he made were far more extravagant than anything David made to Jonathan. He made a promise in, in Genesis three that a, a descendant would come from Eve's line to crush the head of the serpent, our archenemy. He made a promise to Abraham in Genesis twelve that a descendant would come through his line and that all the nations would be would be blessed through him. He made a promise in Second Samuel chapter seven that a descendant would come whose throne would never end. He would have a king. He would be a king with an everlasting kingdom. And little did all these people know that this promised descendant would be Jesus the Christ. But he didn't stay in his heavenly palace and simply send out for us. He came for us himself. He left the throne room and sought us out. Jesus got down and dirty in the dust, taking on our humanity and living amongst our suffering and brokenness. Jesus gave us far more than anything David gave to Mephibosheth, he didn't just give us some land, he gave us himself. He died as a shameful. He died in a shameful, bloody, humiliating death on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins against the king of the cosmos. He did all that so that he could give us people who would have been his mortal enemies, a privileged position at his royal table. You see, Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples promised that they would feast with him again when his kingdom fully and finally comes. And in Revelation 19, we see a beautiful picture of a future feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus gives hopeless outcasts a privileged position at his royal table. And he goes even further than that still, because we don't just sit with him at the table like one of the sons. We are adopted as sons. We sit at the table as fully fledged children of God. In Romans 8, it says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. We don't even just share in a portion of the kingdom coming, we are co heirs in it. And can you imagine what Jesus' inheritance looks like? We are co heirs in that inheritance. This is what our great king has done for us. What an amazing king we have. He is a God abounding in chesed love, faithful, promise-keeping love. But how do we secure this kind of love? In this world, we long for this kind of love. We long for someone like this who will always keep their promises to us. But how do we ensure that we are included in this love? Well, this is where we take hold of the gospel promises in our passage. We'll do this by looking at how Mephibosheth secured David's love. Firstly, we should point out that Mephibosheth did nothing. He did nothing. He was favored by David because of the covenant David had made with his father, Jonathan. He had nothing to do with that. Just like we don't have any control over the fact that God promised to bless the nations through Abraham. We had no part in that process. That's something God committed himself to do through Jesus. Which is really good news because it means that no matter how far gone we are, we cannot mess up God's promises. He is a faithful, promise-keeping God. On the other hand, though, Mephibosheth did do something he humbled himself. He could have tried to assert his right to the throne. He could have raged against David one last time before he thought he would die. But he humbled himself. And he actually provides a stark contrast to Ziba. Ziba tried to curry favor with David by selling out the family he was once loyal to. When David addressed him, he replied, your servant. But when David addressed Mephibosheth, the former heir to the throne got down on his face and said, Behold your servant. You see the contrast? Zeba, in his eagerness to get something for himself, ended up getting a lower position than Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, who expected nothing, who absolutely humbled himself, was blessed beyond his wildest dreams. We need to humble ourselves before God's king Jesus. And we must also know the consequences for rejecting his chesed. Even though he is kind, he is not weak. And rejecting his kindness will ultimately lead to judgment. In fact, the chapter after our story, chapter 10, illustrates this. Because in this chapter, David sets out again to show chesed. This time it's to the Ammonite king. But the Ammonite king rubbishes it. He mistreats David's messengers, and rather than repenting or humbling himself, he gathers an army to fight David instead. And this ultimately led him to experience judgment. He was defeated in battle. So, do you recognize that Jesus is God's King? He reigns over our world. He doesn't need you to accept his kindness, but he wants you to. He wants to show you his love. And if you haven't already humbled yourself before him, I want to plead with you this morning to do that. I want to plead with you this morning to humble yourself before him and receive his steadfast love for you. He wants you to receive it. Will you come under his rule? Will you come under his kingship? And if you have already done that, you've already received that, then I want to encourage you to enjoy your relationship with God. Keep first things first. Christianity is about relationship. How are you giving time to this relationship? What practices do you have in place to help you continually meditate upon God's love? He is a promise keeper. He is generous and humble and kind, and he is calling us to seek him to know him, to enjoy his kindness. So why don't we spend some time doing that now in prayer? Lord Jesus, we just come before you as your people. We come before you, you who are seated on the throne in heaven, And Lord, we humble ourselves before you again. We thank you that you smile upon us, that you give us more than we could ever imagine. You give us a place in your kingdom. You've adopted us as your children, made us co heirs Lord, help us to grasp how wide, how deep, how high your love is for us. Help us to feel it this morning, Lord. Help us to know it. Show us how to continually live in it all of our days. Lord, make us a beautiful community, a community that abides in your love, a community that knows your love and extends it to others. And Lord, I just want to pray for any friends among us this morning who haven't yet accepted your love, who haven't yet humbled themselves before you. Lord, we pray for them this morning that they would see you. That they would see your gospel, your good news, that you have come for them. That you have humbled yourself for their good. And we just pray that they would receive you. In fact, if we could just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed right now, we're just going to continue in this time of prayer. And if you're one of those people, you want to come under Jesus' loving rule you want to experience his love, you want to humble yourself before him, you want to choose him as your king, then I just want to invite you to pray. You can just tell him that. You can just tell him, I surrender to you, I choose you, I want you in my life. I'm just going to give you a little bit of space to do that quietly to yourself right now, and then we're going to continue praying. We'll close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a faithful king, a promise-keeping king, that you promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who have put their trust in you, that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for your love, and we're going to continue to worship you now in the service, after the service, and for all our lives.